Fort Wayne Ballet's Kinetic Conversations. Today's guest is Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown, and we're calling this show The Nutcracker in American Tradition as we discuss the history of the Nutcracker and its evolution into becoming a staple for American ballet companies. So if you're into history, backstories, interesting facts, stick around. We hope you learned some things about something that seems very familiar to all of us during the holiday season. So with that, welcome back, Karen. Thanks for having me today. Let's start from the beginning and at least lay the groundworks for the story. So tell us a little bit about the creation of the Nutcracker and its premiere in 1892. Well, it was actually based on a story called The Mouse King and the Nutcracker, written by E.T.A. Hoffman, who was a great storyteller, and it was written in 1916. And it was written at the end of the Prussian Wars, where there was a lot of turmoil and angst in the country, but it flourished artistically. So there was a lot going on. So as we go into the Nutcracker, that's the base of our scenery, our time frame for the Nutcracker. So when you talk a little bit about the libretto and the story, mm -hmm. is it something that was a story that was well known? Did they dig it out of an archive? How did they come up with this particular libretto? Why this one? It was a rather common story of the day. It wasn't choreographed, as you said, until 1892. So there was a big gap from the original story to the time it found the stage. But actually, the ballet is only a few chapters of the entire book. And I think one of the quotes from a source that I love to say is Hoffman's main theme, Hoffman the author, is the search for the beauty of truth in a world where ugliness of evil challenges a child at every turn. So it's a timeless tale. When you think about it, children are always struggling with that. Our world is not very neat and clean at all times, but this story approached that. So they balletified it for the stage. So Marius Petipa, who is a Frenchman that's considered the father of Russian ballet, was in Russia as the ballet master extraordinaire of the Imperial Ballet and was asked to create a ballet every year, something brand new. Tchaikovsky, a wonderful composer in his own right, was asked by the head of the theater under the direction of the Tsar to create a ballet with Petipa. They had already had success with The Sleeping Beauty, and Tchaikovsky was not so big about writing music for the ballet. It wasn't his most favorite thing to do. But when the Tsar says you do, you do. Uh, I think most people now hear music and they go, oh, that would make a beautiful dance. That would make a beautiful ballet. But at that time, there were composers, house composers in all of the countries that had ballet. So Tchaikovsky was not the house composer, but under the direction of the Tsar did the ballet. Petipa already knew what he wanted before it was composed. So he would say, I need 32 measures of big, strong music for the battle scene, and then I want a gong at this point in the music to break up the battle. He was very descriptive in his libretto to Tchaikovsky to create the score. So during the premiere, and so historically, it was actually quite a night because it wasn't just the ballet. Right. It was they premiered as a double billing with his opera, Iolanta, which nobody does anymore. But I think it's interesting. I can't imagine if you did a full length, even though it really is, it's, it's only a, basically a two act, but still a full length. And then you do an opera, even if it was a short opera, that's a pretty heavy evening. But that was typical of the day. Ballets might be four acts and five hours. That wasn't unusual. So the fact that it was only a two-act ballet was a throwback to the Romantic era, which came ahead of the classical era in dance. And correct me if I'm wrong, from what readings I've done, the ballet was premiered and it wasn't particularly a big hit. 
Um, <laughs> it, it didn't go over particularly well. No, nor was Swan Lake, ironically. However, people told Petipa, the choreographer, that he was crazy because as he was, well, he might have been, but... <laughs> yeah, as he's an artist, were, so there right, you go. Exactly, but thank you very much. But as he was creating this libretto, his intent was to have children play the important roles in the ballet, which makes sense when you hear of Hoffman's main theme for the ballet. So he cast children as Clara or Marie, as she was called in the original story. And you'll sometimes see versions of that. And then the Nutcracker and some of the other roles, the party children were played by children. And they were children in the academy in Russia. But it was not normal for children to take on such important and lengthy roles in a ballet. We know the full length, but the full length is relatively recent. There's a lot of things that, in terms of becoming such commonplace. But when you look at the music, the Nutcracker Suite was actually something people were very familiar with because it was packaged in a way that that was what people were familiar with, but they didn't know the full length in, in America. And Tchaikovsky actually premiered the suite before he premiered the full length because he had it prepared and inserted it during a concert where he had a piece that wasn't ready and didn't like. So it got premiered before, which is so unusual based on the way that usually works. So the first full staging outside of Russia happens, and what happens at that point? Well, after the ballet premiered in Russia, and to note, it's a ballet done at Christmas time, and it's based on German traditions. So although you may see it here in America in December, November, December, the rest of the world might see it in October. It's not an unusual ballet to do at any point in time because the set or the backdrop is Christmas. It's not necessarily for a holiday season. After it did not have great success in Russia, it sort of got buried, didn't come out very often. And the Ballet Russe, which is a ballet company composed primarily of Russians, took the suite on tour. So to familiarize yourself with the suite, you can watch Walt Disney's Fantasia, which is what we all knew for so long. In 1944, William Christensen, who was the director of the San Francisco Ballet, thought this would be wonderful for his company to do. So he presented the full length, The Nutcracker, and that was the first time it had been seen on American soil. Well, and to your point, when you look at people would have heard it in Fantasia 1939, 1940, they used the suite, but it hadn't been staged as the full length ballet here in the United States. We may not think of that now when your child listens to Fantasia, but the suite was popular and familiar and that was why he used it. So it gets staged in San Francisco in 1944. And so how does it begin to go from being staged in San Francisco to becoming what everybody does? What everybody knows now. Well, San Francisco Ballet, again, was the first company to do the full length, and they continue to do it today. They reinvent it every so often, but they still do the full length Nutcracker. In 1954, George Balanchine, who was from Russia originally, was in charge of the New York City Ballet and wanted to bring a bit of the Christmas as he remembered it in Russia and the ballet as he remembered it from his childhood to America. So in 1954, he staged his version of the Nutcracker on New York City Ballet. And the rest, they say, is history. It became hugely popular. So we went from the West Coast all the way over to the East Coast. Didn't take off quite the same way on the West Coast as it has now. But now everybody does it. Companies all over the world tend to do it now at holiday time. But again, in Europe, they may do it in March. So one of the things that you know I think is interesting, it's such an iconic thing for so many people in terms of the music and the characters and, and all of this. But as in any type of art or any situation, 
you don't know what it's ultimately going to be. So you have working things. I, I was reading that, you know, they had the working title as the Christmas tree or the fir tree because that's a central part of the story. Right. But it's also a very German-focused tradition, as many of these things are. Ultimately, they settled on the Nutcracker. Do you know why they settled on the Nutcracker as opposed to stay with that? I, I never discovered what that well, after it became the Christmas tree, it actually became the Nutcracker and the Mouse King. They thought perhaps going back to the original would work. And as this evolved, the part of the Nutcracker plays a primary role in Clara's dream. Or maybe it's not a dream, that's always the question. Or the magical evening that Clara has. So it just has become the Nutcracker. And it's been that since it was premiered in 1944. Some of the other trivia about Tchaikovsky and the music, there's some interesting elements there that no one had heard before. So right. the Sugar Plum Fairy, you used the celeste, which was a brand new instrument, and nobody had heard it. And that story of hearing it in Paris and, and wanting to be the first to use the instrument and sneaking it around and trying to do this before Rimsky-Korsakov and Glazunov and other composers got it, it's kind of an interesting thing, but we don't think about it now. It's extremely iconic in terms of that music it's, it, you hear it and you know exactly what it is. The twinkling bells on right. her arrival in Candyland. Well, and the other story, um, when you do the grandpa, which I think you had told me at one point that that grandpa was not originally the grandpa, it was transition music. Is that correct? That's correct. So how does that work? I mean, in terms of the transition, what was it before? Well, actually, it was the snow potida that was different. The, the snow potida, as we know it now, or dance for two, was originally scene change music. You hear the crash, bang, boom, the very loud pieces in the music. That's because in that day, they had to drag things across the floor to change the sets. We didn't have the same machinations, so to speak, that we have now. So at a certain point in the music, Clara and the prince would walk across the front of the stage in front of the closed curtain and cover up the noises of the scene changes. As we became more advanced in our capability to do set changes, We've adjusted that so that when you hear that glorious music, you see the dance with that. And the scene change happens in front of your eyes now. So in the Grand Adage, the Grand Pa with the Sugar Plum and the Cavalier, it's basically a scale. Right. I mean, the melody is a scale. And looking around, what I dug up was that Tchaikovsky had a friend who he was not thrilled about writing this and <laughs> challenged him, can you write a melody out of a scale, ascending or descending, but in sequence, you can't change the order. It has to be a scale. Can you do that? And he did. It's what we hear all the time, but you don't think about, it's just a scale. That's all Iconic, it is. Iconic, isn't it? <laughs> but it's, again, I'm thinking, okay, so I'm not particularly thrilled about writing this thing. I need a little challenge. Gives me something that I can be clever with. And now you think about it and it becomes iconic, but really all you used was a scale. So I'm, I'm curious too, how these things evolve from basically being, they're not that special, but they become special. And why do you think they become special? In that there's nothing about them necessarily that's super creative at the beginning, but they become something more. Well, actually, Petipoth was very creative in his works in that he would present some unusual thing in each of the ballets every time he choreographed something. And again, he was choreographing about a ballet a year. So that's a lot of creativity that he had to think through. Now when we see it, we don't think it's so unusual. It's pretty common because that's how you've seen the ballet for so long. But the original thing in this ballet was children playing children's roles. He also loved to travel and traveled around Europe and brought back what he thought were the representations of the delicacies of the day. So you have Spanish hot chocolate and Arabian coffee and Chinese tea, etc. 
So that was representative to a country who couldn't necessarily get on the internet or get on the nearest train to travel to these countries. It was a little taste of the rest of Europe. And I think that held a lot of value for a long time for people. Now when you see Nutcracker, it morphs into what each community needs it to be. So it may not quite be represented that way. I do think a part of the staying power of Nutcracker, I've been doing Nutcracker for a few years now, both as a dancer and as a director. And it's every time you hear the first strains of the music, it's magical. It has staying power. The music is hummable. You now hear it in the grocery stores. And I think also that it takes people back. There's something about escaping for a couple of hours that people enjoy and love to do. And it does allow you to escape. So as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, it really has become an American staple. And as such, it has the staying power in the United States. It doesn't have the same sort of intensity or frequency or even impact in other parts of the world that do do ballet. But America has also, as you alluded to, not only made small changes to the story or to the way it's presented based on the community it's in, but probably new productions and new retellings of the story that are quite different because it's become almost Americanized in the sense of being part of our lexicon. So what other notable changes, you know, you mentioned Balanchine in the 54, sort of started things. Well, what maybe has happened since then, maybe that's taken it into other directions? There was a big movement in the 1980s to make it very much a part of your personal community. So there is a place well known for jazz, and Duke Ellington took the score And although he created some new works to go with it, he jazzified it. So there is a jazz version, and they use jazz and tap in the choreography. There is another place that's known for its bourbon, and they made the whole first scene, the party scene, a big bourbon party. So people have adjusted it based on their community. Personally, in our Nutcracker, it's based on the original story and the intent And again, the magic of the season and the magic of wonderment at that time. So it takes on the artistic director's vision. What other things do we not know about the Nutcracker that we need to know about? This is sort of like a trivia party. So I'm curious, is there anything we've left out? I'm sure there is. Um, The first Sugar Plum Fairy was actually an Italian dancer that came to Russia to perform under a French choreographer. So already a bit worldly in its day and time. At that point in time, men didn't really lift women very much, which is a part of why the snow potida has more lifts in it, more spectacular feats in it than the sugar plum fairy. The choreography is more new to the particular productions that are going on. In our version, you know that it snows not only on stage, which it did in the original production, they used to use soap flakes to snow on the audience. And that became treacherous for the dancers because it was slick. So they no longer use soap flakes for snow. It's, a, it's an injury waiting to happen. We also have it snowing on our audience. And I know of only one other production that does that at this point in time. And it becomes an opportunity for each community to involve its community in the production. So here in Fort Wayne, we include Fort Wayne Animal Care and Control and are actually expanding that collaboration to include Humane Fort Wayne. So it really becomes a community party. Well, and to that point, thinking through other communities who have a ballet company or who have done just what you described, including the community, this is one of the productions that, 
and we're lucky enough to do it here. We have the Fort Wayne Philharmonic with us for the entire first weekend. Lucky. Um, normally we have, you know, involvement with the children's choir and with animal care and control and various other elements. This seems to be one of those ballets that if a community's only going to do one that's done with all the forces, this seems to be the one that they try to pull all the pieces together. It is. It's oftentimes people's first entrance to dance. And I think that a part of why it does have the staying power is it's always new and bright and happy. And you don't really have to think hard about the story. You can just sit back and enjoy it. And we're all looking for a little bit of that at this point in time. But as far as trivia, I'm sure we could go on and on for quite a while. The ballet's been around for a while. Sure. And with that, again, thanks for being with us. And we hope to see everybody at the Nutcracker. And and, and we'll be excited to see this year's uh, version of the Nutcracker. I know we have a few new little elements there. So always, always, always a good time uh, to both have some surprises, but also some familiarity and something for the season. So again, thank you. Thank you. Happy holidays. Thanks for being with us today. The Nutcracker performances are December 3rd through December 12th at the Arch United Center. You can purchase tickets by visiting the Fort Wayne Ballet website, artstickets.org, or calling the box office 422-4226. Kinetic Conversations is brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shout Productions. Our guest was Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown. Our producers are John Dawkins and Jim Sparrow. We'd also like to thank John for his original music, which starts and ends the show. If you'd like to receive notifications on future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and more ballet news. You'll also find a library of past episodes on our website in the menu of options. And until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout.